Um, so I just want to say thank you, and thank you for your graciousness, and thank you for be- being willing to um, have someone that y- you might not recognize um, up here sharing. So I thought I would share with you um, a dream that I had about 20 years ago when I was in my early 20s. And just as a disclaimer, I'm really not one of those um, dream interpreter type person. I don't really hold a lot of weight in dreams. But um, this particular dream was quite poignant. And you'll see why in a minute. So I'm just going to share with you what I wrote in my journal. Um, I don't normally write dreams down, but um, this dream, I think it's the only dream I've written down. So I'm going to just share with you what I wrote in my journal. The dream began rather ordinarily with me boarding a train. I took a seat and started to read a book. After a few minutes, I looked up and noticed I had no idea where the train was going. I looked out the window and I saw a barren wasteland. No trees, no water, just dirt, trash, and gray sky. I realized I took the wrong train, and I told myself, as soon as I arrive at the next stop, I would get off and turn around. As I waited anxiously, I continued to peer out the window and noticed the scene. It began to change. Instead of barrenness, I saw people. Only these people were not normal. What I saw was amputees, disease, nakedness, filth. I saw blind people, deaf people, mentally and physically ill people. While I saw one man making a shelter out of flimsy cardboard boxes, another was trying to keep warm with dirty saran wrap. Scene after scene, I saw people making do with the trash around them. As the train moved forward, the crowd kept growing. I soon realized that I was entering a colony of outcasts, a dumping ground for refuse, both people and trash. My first thought was, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get to the next stop and turn around. My second thought was, no, if I get off this train, I'm gonna get contaminated. I began to panic. Do I get out at the next stop? Or do I stay on the train, protect myself, but continue on to who knows where? At this point, I was sweating profusely, my heart was pounding, and I was crying out in desperation. Suddenly, amid my growing fear, I heard a gentle yet firm voice. Anita, what are you afraid of? You do have one more option. You can get out of the train and stay. At that point, I flipped out. I was overwhelmed with anger and yelled out, No way! So, in reality, I said something a little bit stronger than no way. Um, but we're in church. Um, again, I don't normally hold too much weight to dreams, but this one in particular exposed the state of my heart. I was terrified that God was going to send me someplace I didn't want to go and do something I didn't want to do. So, fast forward five years later, 2004. With my husband and four-month-old in tow, I find myself living in the slums of Cambodia, surrounded by people that are malnourished, disabled, abandoned, and sick. And this is where I ended up staying for the next four years. 
When I first arrived in Cambodia, the country was still reeling、um, because of the aftermath of their civil war. You might have heard it referred to as the Killing Fields.、Um, I wish I could say that the state of my heart had changed by then, but in reality, it really hadn't.、Um, in reality, the four years that I spent there was very difficult, and oftentimes I hated my life. Um, I hated the violence. I hated the blatant injustice. I hated the poverty that was around me.、Um, and although I wasn't quite suicidal like Jonah,、um, I would, on a daily pray, daily basis, pray to God that He would just come and destroy everything. That He would put an end to everything. Because I just, honestly, I felt like I couldn't stand it most of the time. <clears throat> God sent me to a place I did not want to be. Doing stuff I didn't really want to do,、um, and I'm guessing that a lot of you can relate to that. That God has called you to a place or to people or to do something that was very challenging that that you really didn't feel like you could do or even wanted to do.、Um, and then the last few weeks, we've been looking at a man, a prophet, who was called by God to go somewhere he did not want to go. And my question is, why does God do this? Why does God send us to places we don't want to go, or to people we don't want to go to, or do things that that we just really don't want to do? Why does God do this? So we're going to finish up Jonah and hopefully gain some insight into this question.、Um, for those of you who haven't been here the last few weeks,、um, including myself, I haven't heard the other sermons on Jonah, so. <laughs> I'm just going to give a quick recap. So, chapter one: God calls Jonah to Nineveh, the evil,、um, ca- the capital of the evil empire Assyria.、Um, in chapter <clears throat> one, verse one, we see that Nineveh,、uh, God, God calls him there because of its great wickedness. Jonah refuses. He runs in the opposite direction on a ship to Tarshish. God sends a storm.、Jo- uh, Jonah, the crew on the ship, almost dies. So Jonah convinces the crew to throw him overboard, but God saves him. He sends a big fish. He saved.、Um, we see in chapter two that in the belly of the fish, where he stayed for three days and three nights, he has a bit of a quiet time with God.、Um, he thanks God for saving him, praises God. He obey, does, you know, promises to obey and go to Nineveh.、Um, interestingly enough, he doesn't technically fully repent for running away. In chapter three, we see that Jonah does follow through. He does go to Nineveh, and he gives a very succinct sermon: "Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed." So we don't get that much sense、um, that he says that much more about、um, what's going to happen. He doesn't really—it doesn't look like he explains why they're going to be destroyed, or、um, about God's mercy, or really God at all. But miraculously, the entirety of Nineveh is overturned. They repent. The evil king, all the people, even their animals. God sees their repentance, relents from their judgment, and there is no destruction. And this is where we fall. So you would think at the end of chapter three, done, mission accomplished. Jonah did follow through. He did obey. He went to Nineveh. They're all converted. Successful mission. However, as soon as we think that the story has wrapped up and to a nice denouement, a nice ending,
um, it quickly takes an about phase. And this is where we find Jonah in chapter 4. <clears throat> we see that in chapter 4, Jonah is very upset. Um, verse 1, it says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Another translation, he was greatly displeased. Jonah was upset that the Ninevites, his enemies, were not destroyed. And he became very angry. Now, um, the word angry, vayishar, vayichar, whatever, um, does not really translate well in English. Um, if you look at the word in Hebrew, it also means depressed. It means distressed. It means to be in despair. You know, usually when we think of someone that's angry, we think of someone that wants to lash out, that wants to hurt or kill. But we see here that Jonah actually wants to die. He's not just angry, he's in despair, he's, he's distressed. Um, you know, the father of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, he's usually the person that people attribute to coming up with the whole idea that depression is internalized anger that it's anger toward inward, so we implode rather than explode. Well, obviously, God thought about it first. So Jonah is not just angry. He's in despair. He's vayishar. He's, he's in distress. He wants to die. And why is that so? Um, we see in his prayer that he says, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, first of all, isn't that an amazing prayer? I love it, chewing out God. Um, I don't think I've ever taught that type of prayer before. But anyways, it's so honest, it's so raw, I love it. Um, and so what does Jonah blame God for? He blames him for being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So does that refrain sound familiar to any of you? Yes? Yes? Well, it should, because it's, it's repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And it originates from Exodus 34. So the context of Exodus 34 is when uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. And when God is giving him the Ten Commandments, God is declaring about himself the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So do you see what Jonah's doing? In his prayer, he's taking God's very own words about himself and throwing it back at him. And what's even crazier about this is when God first said this, when he was giving Moses the Ten Commandments and declaring about himself how he's gracious and compassionate, this happened right after the Israelites rebelled against God, built the golden calf, and started worshiping the calf in replace of God. And we see this pattern over and over again throughout the Old Testament, where the Israelites will rebel, they'll worship another idol, they'll get into trouble, God will save them, God shows compassion, God shows mercy. This happens over and over again. So do you see the irony in this? Israel, Jonah's people, would not exist for the very thing Jonah is angry about. Jonah is upset. He's furious. He's, he's in despair because the same compassion God shows his own people is shown to his worst enemies. 
Jonah is ticked because the, bene- the, the mercy and grace that he benefited from is shown to the, the worst of the worst, the Ninevites. Now, it's easy for us to judge Jonah for his attitude, to call him petty, selfish, um, racist even. But let's take a step back and try to put ourselves in his shoes. So um, my day job is a trauma therapist, and a lot of my clients, women and men, um, have been sexually assaulted. Um, a lot of them have or ha- are in the process of going through pressing charges against their assailant. And um, do you know what happens most of the time to the assailant? What happens? Any guesses? You're nodding your head? What happens? Nothing. Exactly. You know, most of my clients, um, they say that the thing that hurt the most, the the worst part of being assaulted, oftentimes isn't the assault itself, but that there is no justice. Are they angry? Of course they are. And so I, when I witness this type of injustice, I kind of get where Jonah's coming from. I mean, after all, he was called by God to go to the most evil, uh, violent nation in 8th century BC. The Assyrians were rapidly expanding their territory by successfully conquering the nations around them. Jonah knows that his people are next. They're going to be pillaged. They're going to be violated. They're going to to be overthrown. Tens of thousands of his people are going to be taken captive, sent to exile in Assyria, and be made slaves. God himself in chapter 1 says, Nineveh is a great, powerful, and wicked city. So when God first calls Jonah to minister to his worst enemies, it's easy to assume that Jonah's terrified of getting killed. He runs in the opposite direction because he doesn't want to get killed. But Jonah runs not because he's called to be a martyr, but because he's called to witness God's mercy. Jonah's called to something even worse than being killed. He's called to witness God having compassion on his enemies. And this makes Jonah furious. He doesn't want to share God's compassion, especially to these people that are so unworthy and so undeserving. And we can judge Jonah for his selfishness, but don't we sometimes do the same? Um, We tend to think that God is on our side. He backs up our way of life. And when other nations, when other groups, when other people, subcultures act and behave and think and, and and do things that are contrary to what we think are right and fair and just, um, don't we sometimes vilify them? Don't we also imagine that they're beyond God's grace and sometimes even wish ill of them? But whether we like it or not, God loves those who don't deserve it. God loves the worst of the worst. God's mercy extends to those who we think are beyond his grace. Um, When I was in Cambodia, when we were in Cambodia, part of our ministry was um, running this AIDS hospice. We we lived in this AIDS hospice, and um, Danny and I were, 
well, part of it was to train the Cambodian staff to run it on、um, their own without foreign aid. So we had this Cambodian doctor on staff, Lacru, and、um, you know he treated the AIDS patients. And one day at a staff meeting, he was clearly distressed, very upset. It turned out the man who had killed his father came in for treatment. Lacru said. How can I treat this man? How can I treat the man that destroyed my life, that destroyed our family's life? How can I care about him? In tears, he said, "The only way I can do this is because God loves. God's relentless compassion pursues the unrighteous. God's relentless compassion pursues our enemies, even though that hurts." Even though that's painful, obviously it was so painful for Jonah. It hurt. It hurt him seeing his enemies being shown mercy. So how does God respond to Jonah?、Uh, in verse four, we say God replied,、um, "Have you any right to be angry?"、Um, so that's what the NIV says. I'm just curious. What other translations do people have?、Um, what does your translation say? Anyone? Anyone have something different? Okay. So great, thanks.、Um, so the NASB, which is a more literal translation, says, "Do you have a good reason to be angry?"、Um, another translation, "What are you angry about?" So, compared to the NIV, does that feel different to you? Um, when I read the NIV, which is the the translation I kind of grew up with,、um, I, it sounds very berating and condemning.、Um, when I hear, "What's your reason for being angry?" sounds kind of more like a divine therapist.、Um, you're angry. Tell me about it. In any case, God does not walk away from Jonah. God does not ridicule him in his anger. He reaches out to him in his despair. We see this more、um, as we move on. Jonah had gone out and sat down to a place east of the city. He made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. All right. So Jonah dismisses God's first attempt.、Um, he stonewalls God, stomps away. He's still waiting to see fire from heaven destroy Nineveh. He's still waiting for justice.、Um, but God disappoints him. Nothing happens. So then, God provides a leafy plant and makes it grow over Jonah's head, to give him shade from the,、uh, to give him shade, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah is very happy about the plant. So God reaches out to Jonah again, this time offering something very tangible. Again, instead of condemning Jonah for his anger, God reaches out to him in his despair, kind of like a cosmic hug. But then something strange happens. At dawn the next day, God provides a worm which chews up the plant so it withers. The sun rose. God provides a scorching east wind, and the sun blazes on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, "It would be better for me to die than to live." So why does God do this? In the entire book, Jonah is upset. He's distressed. He's in despair, and then God provides something tangible to give him comfort, but then just as quickly takes it away. Okay,、uh, 
Um, let's keep reading and find out what happens. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Okay, do you see what's happening here? In verse 4, the first time God asks, are you angry? He's referring to his compassion towards the Ninevites. Are you angry that I showed compassion to, the Ninev- to Nineveh? Jonah dismisses him, storms off, he can't deal. Verse 9, are you angry about the plant? He gets a response. God is meeting Jonah where he's at. Jonah refuses to deal with his anger regarding the Ninevites, but hey, you know what? About the plant, I'll, I'll respond. I'll engage. So now that Jonah, God has Jonah's attention, he gets to the point and gets to the heart of Jonah's issue. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Okay, Jonah, I get it. You... You, you liked the plant, and it died. And should, you not, or should I not have concern or compassion for this great city, Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? All right, Jonah, you're fixated on a plant that died. You're fixated on a plant that died, but there are a whole mess of people out there who are dying in their sin. God is inviting Jonah, look up from the plant. Look up from the plant, Jonah, and out to the people. Look up from the plant. Look out. Look beyond yourself. There's more than just the plant to be worried about. Just as much as Jonah runs from the Ninevites, God chases them. God pursues them. Just as much as Jonah hates his own life, God saves him. God cares about the mission, but he also cares about the missionary. God's relentless compassion pursues the unrighteous, but he also pursues the self-righteous. So back to the original question, why does God send us to places and people we don't want to go to. Um, well, God is inviting us into his, compassionate, his passionate pursuit um, to see the most hardened people overturned and for our own hearts to be overturned. In First, Second uh, Peter, God says, um, it says, God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone. That includes unrighteous people. That includes self-righteous people to come to repentance. First Timothy, God wants all people, including the least, the lost, the most undeserving, those beyond what we think are beyond God's grace. He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, I love how Jonah ends with a very provoking question. Should I not have compassion um, instead of a clear resolution? It's kind of left open-ended. It's as if the author is pivoting Jonah's story. He's pivoting our attention from Jonah's story to ours. It's as if God is inviting us and urging us, will you join me in this passionate pursuit in showing compassion to the most hardened of hearts, the most undeserving, the most unworthy? Um, 
in the Gospels, um, we see in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus is having a conversation with these religious leaders. And these religious leaders, they don't buy Jesus. I mean, they don't, they don't believe that he's Lord. They don't believe he's, he's Son of God. So they start provoking Jesus, and they ask for proof. They ask Jesus for a sign. And Jesus, unwilling to indulge their provocation, responds to them. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was, in three, was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the Son of Man will be there, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jonah, rescued from the belly of a fish for three days and from Jonah, rescued from the belly of a fish after three days and three nights was a miraculous sign to the Ninevites. And this sign led to their repentance. In parallel, Jesus, three days and three nights in the grave, is the sign, is the proof that he really is Savior and Lord. So through Jonah, the wicked Ninevites received the compassion of God. And through Jesus, we too are given access to God's inexhaustible love. So God chose to call Jonah a far from perfect prophet. Um, We label him selfish, self-indulgent, or or I guess pitiful. God chose Jonah to be a sign. And he also chooses to use me and you. God invites us to participate in his passionate pursuit for the lost, for the least, the most undeserving, the most unrighteous, So today we're going to take communion, and as we do, um, let's remember that Christ's body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us, and even though we are undeserving, we are unworthy to receive his uh, inexhaustible compassion, inexhaustible love and mercy, he still chooses us to, to be a sign, a sign of his grace. So we can come to the Lord's table today um, with all our doubts, with all our fears, anger perhaps, our self-righteousness, and know that he will still take us. He will still use us. So let's pray. God, um, I just thank you for the story of Jonah. Um, I thank you that even though he was far from a perfect prophet, he still used us. Uh, you still used him. Um, God, I thank you that we are far from perfect prophets, but you still use us as well. And God, as we continue to worship you today, God, I pray that we would come as we are, that we would come with our doubts, our fears. God, knowing that um, you'll still use us, even though we are far from perfect God, we, we show mercy where we have been shown mercy and grace where we have been shown grace. Amen. Oh.